but that, that clearly was not my calling. Clearly I was not passionate about it. And that was really my first inkling that you can be good at something and not enjoy it. And that's okay. Welcome to Perspectives from the Top. I'm Chris Robart, global keynote speaker with unique leadership experience from military, business, and government, best-selling author, and your guide to greater success. Together, we'll discover powerful insights from the world's leading thinkers, doers, and trailblazers, the must-know trends, thought-provoking revelations, and practical actions you can use immediately. This is your exclusive and personal shot of insight and inspiration to help you get to the top. Welcome to you and all of our perspectives from the top community of listeners across the world. It's great to share the insights of such successful people with you to help you get to where you want to be. Now, our guest today is Ruth Gotian, the Chief Learning Officer and Assistant Professor of Education in Anesthesiology and former Executive Director of the Mentoring Academy at Vile Cornell Medicine. Ruth started her career in university registry management at NY State and Cornell. After a brief period in international banking, she then moved into academic medical administration, leading the transformation of learning and development for literally thousands of students over 26 years at Will Cornell. During this period, Ruth gained her PhD in education from Columbia and has also focused in on finding out what makes people high performing and successful to help others achieve the same. Now, Ruth has researched the most successful people, including Nobel laureates, astronauts, CEOs and Olympic champions, in order to learn about their habits and practices so that we may optimize our own success. And she reveals what she found out in this interview and in her book, The Success Factor. Ruth regularly publishes in such journals as Nature, Scientific American, Academic Medicine, Psychology Today, Forbes and Harvard Business Review. And she's also recognized in the Thinkers 50 Radar List, the Oscars of Management Thinking. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us on Perspectives for the Top. Uh, our listeners are really interested to hear what you're going to say as, as an expert on performance and success and learning. So if we start the story off, one of the things that really interests our, our listeners is who sort of started you on this journey? Somebody that inspired you to take the direction you did, a sort of maybe a teacher, family member or, or mentor. Uh, was there somebody special that perhaps started started all of this? It, you know, it was uh, it was actually decades of watching nothing happening to a pervasive problem and getting really, really frustrated. And I decided to look at the other end of the problem. And my mentor came up to me and he said, he didn't tell me what to do, which is what good mentors do. But he said to me, do something important, not just interesting. Brilliant. And that changed everything. <laughs> So, so sorry, where, where, where was this mentor, just out of interest? So this is Dr. Bert Shapiro. Um, he was in charge of all MD-PhD programs at the National Institutes of Health, which is the, the governing body of all of our research in the United States. 
And the problem that I was getting incredibly frustrated with was, and this is actually the same problem we're having around the world today. I was running what's called an MD-PhD program. My students were getting the dual MD and PhD degree simultaneously. These programs have a 3 4% acceptance rate. It's really hard. You need to sacrifice a lot in order to be competitive for these programs. And yet people were leaving halfway through. We were having, not just us, everyone, a retention problem, which was causing a national problem. And everyone was so focused on why people are leaving. And I was more concerned with those who were staying. And I kept having my eye on those at the other end of the spectrum who were so incredible. And I kept wondering, what if we can create more of those people? We won't need as many people because their work would be so much bigger, so much better, so much impact, so much more impactful. So at the age of 43, while working full time and raising my family, I went back to school and I decided to study this and have not stopped since. I'm older than I look. (laughs) It sounds to me, it sounds to me like your mentor deserves some of the blame for this because you got hooked with with what Dr. Shapiro said. I, I really did. And, you know, it was interesting because everyone was trying to create a number to quantify it. And I kept thinking it's not about the numbers. It's about the people. It's about their why. And that's why I really wanted to do something more qualitative. And with his one sentence of do something important, not just interesting, That really changed everything from a local one institutional study to a national study where I was interviewing Nobel Prize winners and institute directors at the National Institutes of Health and the former Surgeon General of the United States. And then once I started going, I just couldn't stop. Kind of became addicted. But to, to, to that degree, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about serious, serious stuff in, in terms of, you know, in that world, you need a steady flow of clinicians and scientists to get stuff done. Um, you know, we, we, we might touch on, on other industries like financial services and, you know, perhaps the, the, the impact of a few less people in financial services is not as significant as a few less people doing uh, MDs and being doctors and clinicians. That's right. That's right. And when I found the four elements of success with the physician scientist, which was my doctoral dissertation work, well, I was fascinated with it. But then the next step was, were the same things I found in those extreme high achievers in that industry, would that translate to other industries? So I started going on a quest to find other extreme high achievers. And I was talking to astronauts and Olympic champions, and NBA champions, and senior politicians, and Fortune 500 CEOs, and Tony Award winners. And, you know, when I say that I was obsessed with success, I wasn't kidding. And I don't stop. I still continue. I even wrote a book about it. <laughs> In, indeed. And we'll, 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 yeah, we'll come on to your, your book, Success Factors. What I, what, what I find interesting is that you started all of this journey um, which is amazing. You, you started it working in the residency part of New York State, of Cornell, helping students basically have a, having, have a stable environment within which to do their learning by virtue of the residency. And, and I find that fascinating because 
people just talk about the important thing is the course. No, it's not just the course. It's the environment within which the student is able to study that course. And I've strangely years ago, I was a chairman of a hall of student uh, student hall at University College London, and the. The, the comments from students about how much their environment that they lived in mattered was, was so significant and everybody else was just ignoring it. So, so you started there and that was your sort of first touching onto leadership. Just give our listeners a little bit of an insight into how, how that as your first experience of leadership sort of molded you into knowing that people needed to have a good environment to study and also for you as a a first-time leader? Well, you know, it's interesting because I never remember myself not being in a leadership role from being class president in elementary school to, you know, whatever it is. There are people who talk and then there are people who do. And I don't like to talk about things. I just like to get things done, right? That's why we have two ears and one mouth so we one mouth so that we can listen twice as much as we talk. But we also have two hands so we can do twice as much. Um, so I always remember myself in leadership roles that the bit about housing really started in a very interesting way. That's not something I even expected. I started at the beginning at the um, State University of New York at Stony Brook, which is one of our state universities. And I transferred in as a sophomore. I did my freshman year abroad. And the front door to our suite was from wood. And from the heat, there's no air conditioning in student dorms. It expanded. And I couldn't close the front door. (laughs) And as a woman, I was not comfortable (laughs) having the front door not close, especially in a co-ed dorm. So I put in the appropriate maintenance request. But, you know, it's move-in weekend. It's me and thousands of others that have maintenance requests. And one day goes by, two days go by, three days go by. I said, this is absolutely ridiculous. So I went with a clipboard and I went door to door to every single suite. I don't know, there were maybe a hundred suites in the building. And I said, what maintenance requests have you put in that were not solved yet? And I got a list pages and pages long and I sent it to the head of housing. (laughs) That was my introduction. (laughs) Within 24 hours, my front door closed And I was asked to take on a leadership role within housing, ultimately becoming the president of the Residence Hall Association and haven't stopped since. That was in 1989. That's so cool. It's so cool that, that, that actually we both ended up doing the same thing in a student hall of residence to try and make life better for everybody, because it's you know that's the point about seeing the bigger picture. But so all of this journey might not have started if your door had actually fitted. That's right. And you can imagine what happened when I was in grad school and I wanted a peephole on my door so I can see who's knocking on my door. <laughs> I can imagine. But by then they knew who they were dealing with. Yeah, I, I can imagine knowing the academic residency well, that would have taken a lot of signatures and a lot of pieces of paper just to put a peep That's hole right. in the door. So That's listen, right. I then, got it done now. Yeah. So, so you then, listen, you then took this career, career change into financial services, um, which I, which I love because. Like where did that come from, right? Yeah. I cannot imagine, uh, to be blunt, um, I cannot imagine a more significant cultural change. So tell us, um, you went into, where was it, Bank Lumi? 
That's right. So my bachelor's and master's were in business and like all good business students, I have to, you had to go into finance (laughs) and international banking. And I did. And I was on this, this fast track management track. I got tenure in nine months, which is unheard of. There were people there 25 years who didn't get tenure. Anyway, that did not make me their favorite colleague. But what that did teach me was that you can be really good at what you're doing and not enjoy it. So I could do it. There was no question I could do it. And I did investments and I did import export, but I didn't enjoy it. When I tell you I was dragging my feet to work, I would let that snooze button go off in the morning for an hour. I didn't want to go. I could do it. I liked it. And I loved some of my colleagues. We're still friends today, 25 years later. But that that clearly was not my calling. Clearly, I was not passionate about it. And that was really my first inkling that you can be good at something and not enjoy it. And that's okay. That's that's a really interesting point because that then links into the the the, the story of success factors in how you become successful in terms of aligning what you enjoy and 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 what you're good at. But we'll pick that one up later. So you you had this you, you I think you what you tolerated you tolerated that for just over a year I think and two years <laughs> two, two years. years two years <laughs> then back yeah but but but. Even if the work wasn't that challenging, to be blunt, coming from the world of academia, the culture must have been a bit of a shock as well. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? If you can if you can deal with the doggy dog world of finance, you can deal with academia. And I found a lot more collaboration within academia. And that was clearly what I needed. I did not want the um, siloed world. I wanted a more collaborative nature, which is why to this day, and I'm a faculty member, I try to write with other people and publish with other people. Because those best pieces, those best projects, those best papers are where we take my area of expertise and someone else's area of expertise, overlay them on each other, and see where we overlap. Where is that overlap? And that's what we usually tend to work on and write about. And then we can each bring in expertise from our own worlds. And that's what makes it so powerful. That's what makes it go viral. But, but that is a really powerful point it, 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 in that, you know, you mentioned the dog eat dog um, world, the financial services world. That really strikes a chord with me because, um, my one of the fundamental elements of my role as global head of leadership at UBS was quite simply to get people to collaborate rather than, you know, to dissuade them from trying to stab each other in the back to get up the slippery slope to the top. And wasn't easy, was it? <laughs> no, it wasn't easy. But bizarrely, once people start, once you, you know from all, all the all the um, uh, research about change, once you get that first 10, 15 percent of early adopters starting to do it and they were going, actually, this is really good because there are always people out there who are collaborators and, and, it, and it just snowballed. And that's why it's a Harvard case study. But 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 I think that. Your comment about academia and wanting to work with people links in again to to what you found about how people are successful, because we need other people to help us be successful. Um, so 
you you then went back into the the sort of medical world and what i find i find interesting is that you stayed there a long time and you've achieved an awful lot over that what 20 20 years 21 27 years almost 27 years total um total yeah so tell me so tell me and i'm only 39 it's it's just fascinating that somebody stays in a role so long and somebody like you who is always trying to get things done when i when i looked at what you'd sort of achieved it became clear to me that somehow over that period of time you'd managed to get challenge after challenge and evolution after evolution to transform the lives of the people the students and and other people you were supporting um is that what happened so, yes, I stayed, especially with the MD-PhD program for 22 years, and I even had the same boss that entire time. So that I think those two things are extremely unusual. But the reason I loved that role so much was that I had the students for seven to eight years. So I really, really got to know them. And every year there was a new crop of students. Of course, sorry, because this is an MD program, so it's... Significantly it's MD longer plus a PhD plus They're a PhD two degrees. Yeah, yeah, so it's not a normal single degree, etc. Which is only two. three years. It's two degrees. And, but what was so fascinating about this program, which I don't know any other job that you can do this, I got to be a specialist in almost every single field in academic medicine and higher education. So I oversaw everything soup to nuts. That's recruitment, admissions, student affairs, crisis management, grants, budgets, marketing, um, alumni affairs, event planning, everything except for financial aid. I had to know inside and out. And those fields kept expanding and growing. The problem was I was the only one. I don't know that was a problem. I think it was my biggest asset. I was the only one that understood how one of those offices works with the other. And if you make a change in one, in a system of one, how that can impact the other offices. No one else knew that because no one else was working with all of those other offices as intimately as I was. So when we created a student information system where these processes needed to talk to each other, I knew that if you change an advisor here, it's going to impact downstream at all these different places. So that to me was fascinating. And I got to work with the most incredible students, the most incredible faculty. And it was during that time to figure out how we can make more of those people that I I went back to school to get my doctorate. And from then it just started to grow and grow. And when the challenges ended there, and I literally literally changed the color of the paint on the wall in order to find a challenge, then I knew it was time to find something else. So that's that's when you did your PhD in education at Columbia then? That's correct. But I was still working full time as I was doing. Yeah, sure. Uh, you don't like make life easy for yourself, do you? <laughs> I'm not very good at being idle. <laughs> no, no, no. But uh, listen, I, I, I find that the, the, the points that came out of that are really interesting. The The criticality of if you're going to make something work well, you, you need to understand the big picture and not just the person that's in charge, the people that are leading the different parts 
of the big picture need to understand the big picture. And that goes back to the fundamental challenge that all organizations have of people thinking in silos, not whole organization. I, I think that's a that's a beautiful point, and it's an indictment of academia and most other sectors that I've been involved in that that very, very few people see that big picture. And that vastly restricts performance. But it also, to your point about constant change and development, it fundamentally restricts the ability to change and transform because of that ripple effect that you spoke about. You change something in one place and there is an unseen ripple in another place that the people in that little silo don't even think about. That's right. They, they don't even know that they should be thinking about it. But that was that was really became apparent to me when we created that student information system and people just didn't understand how things just were interwoven with each other and how many how all of these exceptions could impact so many people's work. So when I started getting involved in every single one of those meetings, that's really when it was solidified in my mind. It's that, 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 that's really interesting in, in the, you know, over the years. Uh, one of the things I've done, example, the UBS case, I got all the heads of learning and development from the different divisions together and said, tell me what you're doing for different levels of your people. And we did a big, did we did a big matrix on the wall. This is what we're doing here. This is what we're doing for the most senior. This is what we're doing for talented people. And in the end, there was a matrix that was a picture of what was going on in the organization for learning and development from bottom to top. Nobody had ever done that before. And, and what that big picture did was it revealed that there were gaps that were risks. It revealed that there were duplications. It revealed where there was opportunity that nobody had recognized because everybody was only looking at their own part of the picture. I, I, I you know, to all our listeners, I just think, if, if you're in a role where you can coordinate an overview of the big picture and get people to understand it better, just do it for everybody's sanity. That's right. And you'll see where there's duplication of effort and you'll see where there are people who have creative ideas. You'll see how other people can learn from those ideas and piggyback on them. You'll see what other types of output you can create from it. I mean, the, the possibilities are limitless. Yeah. And it just takes a little bit of time to to go up, up to helicopter view and just see what the jigsaw looks like as a picture rather than a set of pieces uh, of a jigsaw. So that's that's fascinating um, and really great. Some really great ideas for our listeners there. Now, you have been in that medical world uh, for a, a very long time and you obviously understand it totally. But a lot of our listeners have never been in that world. Um, and it's really interesting. I, I spent a couple of years uh, in the UK National Health Service helping them build a leadership development strategy, actually, and a talent identification strategy, because uh, 1.4 million staff, they had no idea where their talent was or who their talent was. But Within the context of a medical environment, you, you sort of have different groups of people. Uh, you have the management group, you have the clinic, the clinicians, um, and how leadership operates within that environment, I find really interesting because 
what I saw was clinicians being promoted on the basis of their clinical ability, not their leadership ability to some degree. Talk to us about, so our listeners understand better, what goes on in, in that clinical type environment around how people work together, how leadership develops, et cetera, because it's not the same as a business environment, is it? Not at all. And it's, you know, it's, it's very interesting and it's not just academic medicine. It's really all of higher education. So if we were to have a professor, uh, let's say a, a teacher, a K through 12 teacher, right? Kindergarten through 12th grade, they go through schooling to learn that particular subject. They do student teaching, somebody's observing them, right? And they have to get this credential. And if you want to become a principal, there's other credentials that you need to get. But in higher education, which includes academic medicine, it's not like that. If you have many high impact papers, if you, which are cited often, what we call an H factor, if you have a lot of grants and bring in, therefore, a lot of funding to the institution, right, that is what they are looking at. So if you look at the people who are actually promoted more often, you have to, they have to make up their time in different, in different ways and their salary. So it's, it's not the people who have ever um, led or had management skills, they may not even know, aside from their own grants, how to balance big budgets. They are learning it all through on-the-job training. Very few of them have MBAs. Very often, they are now going to some professional development workshops and courses for new deans or new chairs or whatever it is, because all of a sudden, they now need to manage people, time, and space. Where in the past, they just had to manage their own time, space, and maybe the people in their lab or the people in their group, but they are all learning through trial and error, which is different from other institutions, especially those where you're getting those advanced degrees where we learn how to manage budgets and forecasts and all of those things. And, 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 and just for our listeners, so what Ruth was saying is that the sort of key performance criteria for those in that world is how many academic study papers they write on different subjects that are perceived to be a really good study. Um, and the more of those, basically, the more you write, um, the more you get promoted. But the ability to write an academic paper, as Ruth has indicated, does not mean you are good at running an institution, which was the fundamental challenge. Of every institution. And it's not just writing a lot of papers. You have to write the, a lot of papers, be in either the first or last author, write in high impact journals and make sure people are citing your work in their work. So it's a whole domino effect, but it's really all dependent on your research. Now, what's fascinating is um, there's a dean position open and I actually I reached out to a Nobel Prize winner who I know and have a lot of respect for. And I said, are you, are you interested in being the dean? And he said, no. I said, why I, I, not? I knew you were going to say that, but tell me why. <laughs> I, I can guess why, but tell our listeners why. He said, I've never been a dean. I've never been a chair. I've never been a president. I just run my lab. I love my science and my research so much 
that I don't want to be bogged down in administration. And it's interesting. I recommended that I recommended the dean role to other people who I really respect as people, as scientists, as clinicians, and the best scientists. They kept saying, I just love what I'm doing. I'm so knee deep in my science. I, I don't want to give up any time in order to do administration. But but that's that, but that's so beautiful. In it, it reflects your earlier point about you being passionate about what you do, and you don't want to be diverted from that. Uh, and strangely, if we go back to the world of financial services, I I know of people who've been very senior in banks, who have been in the C-suite of international banks, who, for example, have <clears throat> excuse me, come from a private banking background or a trading background. And they've put up with being C-suite and being in meetings and organizing this. And after a year, I can think of one in particular said, I've had enough of this. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to run private banking worldwide. I actually want to work with clients again, not be in meetings. And this individual was made chairman so he could go off and and talk to people rather than look at spreadsheets. And he just loved it. He said, this is a weight off my mind. I can do what I love now, which is help people. That's right. And, you know, it's interesting. The former superintendent, which is like the president of the United States Military Academy at West Point, when he retired from the military, he was a general. He went to become the president of a university. I think it was the University of South Carolina. And he left after a short tenure. And he said it was easier going to war than it is being the president of a university. And I think it's it's not for the weak. <laughs> uh, that's 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 really that's a good. Point. So so you you then took over as assistant dean, executive director of the your mentoring academy. You were the chief learning officer anesthesiology. You'd already got that. Sorry, you got the PhD from Columbia. Um, so you are a sort of catalyst for people in terms of their learning, development, and growth. But that is so important to people. But, but one of the things I've noticed is that in different organizations, different areas of life, the value that is attached to helping people learn, grow, and develop is, is different. Um, so in, in your world, in the medical world, you know, everybody gets it because let's face it, you know, if you're on an operating table and you're about to have an operation, you really want the guy who's doing the operation to know what they're doing or the, the, the lady that's doing it. You know, if you're about to get on a flight to uh, Heathrow in London, you want the guy who's flying the plane or the lady that's flying the plane to actually know what they're doing. So within those, um, and even in IT to a degree and, and law, there are those jobs where the growth, learning and development is an accepted part of the job. But if you then look out more widely, into other jobs where that historically has not happened. I've seen the degree to which organizations are serious about helping people learn, grow, and develop is actually significantly less than um, those where it, it, it is a cultural necessity, so to speak. Yeah, it's so true. And, and doing it within academic medicine is challenging because they don't have control over their time. 
So I'm embedded within the Department of Anesthesiology. There's a case in the operating room. They can't leave the patient on the table, excuse me, I have to learn how to overcome <laughs> the seminar to go syndrome. to. Right? I'll be back <laughs> I'll be, in a while. I'll be back in an hour. You can't do that. <laughs> no, 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 no. So we have to really find more creative ways to reach people where they are and do things on the go. And remember, they have gone, healthcare workers have had the most challenging two and a half years, really unbelievably challenging, really scarred. Um, there is a an alarming exit. Yes, I've seen the, the figures. healthcare field. Significant departures. So what we are focusing on within learning and development is really to bring them back to the baseline and then we can help get them to thrive. But we, it's everything that we knew, we are now having to rethink. Yeah, I think to our listeners who it, it, it's interesting when you look at what happened in COVID um, from what I've seen somewhere along the lines of um, pretty much 20% of, of people were able to carry on pretty much in terms of what they were doing before because their jobs didn't contain a significant transmission risk. So on-site construction, for example. Um, 30% who were in high-risk situations, hospitality, retail, etc., they were furloughed or made redundant. Those in the office environment who could remote, which was another 30% in UK and pretty much the same in the States, uh, remoted. But, but then there was that additional 20% of essential workers, including your colleagues in medicine, um, bus drivers, emergency services, who had to carry on, irrespective of, of the risks. And you're absolutely right. Um, the stress that that presented to those in those high-risk jobs over those two years has had a, a dramatic effect on their lives, on their careers, which, I mean, the reason I'm mentioning it is because those who were in the other 80% who didn't suffer that need to appreciate the sacrifice that those people gave. I, I, I did an interview with um, Claire Mann, who used to be head of London's 11,000 buses running through um, franchise companies. And she said she dreaded going into work because she never knew when she was going to get a note that said, we've lost another one of our drivers. They lost over 60 and, you know, I just think, oh, sorry, I'm passionate about this because I think those who weren't in that essential work worker group need to appreciate the sacrifices that were made. Yeah, absolutely. And remember, a lot of the healthcare workers, and I'll take the anesthesiologist as an example, they were literally on the front of the front line. They were intubating patients. They were wearing their masks and their shields and all their covers. And now, you know, we're getting wave after wave after wave, right? I mean, this is just not finishing. And if you ask them, okay, so did you go out this weekend? They said, I just really don't want to wear a mask. They're still wearing masks 24-7 at work. Every minute they have to wear a mask. They say, I just, I can't, I need a break. I just need a break. So the social aspect has very much changed, even though they were at work. 
They couldn't sit and eat together during their break. It's take your food and eat by yourself in your office. So we were all doing parallel play. We were all there. Just people were just not interacting in the same way. I, I think so. I, to, to be honest, from, from myself and all of our listeners, please accept our thanks for what you and your colleagues did during COVID because it, it, you know, we just cannot understand what you went through on our behalf. So please, please accept those thoughts. It's really what they did. I was just, I, I was just uh, there to support them in any way that I can. It was really the the physicians who did an unbelievable job, and are still doing it. So, one of the one of the things that the whole point of perspectives from the top is to help people grow and develop by hearing what other people have done, and and to put that into practice. So if, you know, if we lead on to your book, Success Factors, you have looked at, as you alluded to earlier, at some of the most successful people you, you could imagine, science, medicine, sport, politics, people on Broadway, um, and have identified areas that are common in terms of that vast diversity of what people do, but then leads to success. So, Really, it would be great for you to give us some insight into why you decided to write the book, what you found uh, are those key factors, and were there any surprises along the way that you discovered things that you weren't expecting? Absolutely. So the book is called The Success Factor, and it's really about the four elements of success that I found in all the extreme high achievers, the Nobel Prize winners, the astronauts, the Olympic champions. And once I realized the Nobel Prize winning scientist is identical in mindset to the Olympic champion figure skater and the astronaut and the CEO, that's when I realized and it confirmed my belief that success can be learned. So I have been doing this research for years and years. And as I said, it really started from my, my, my doctoral days, doctoral studies days. And there were four things that I found. The first one is, remember my banking story. All of the extreme high achievers found what they were passionate about, the reason they wake up in the morning, the reason they can't quiet their mind at night, the fire in their belly. This is why they were put on this earth. That's number one. You have to find that first. When you find that, you are going to outwork everybody. And that's the second one. And it's not about putting in 18-hour days because that's just not sustainable. Really what it is, is how the high achievers view and overcome challenges. You see, Chris, they never question if they will overcome the challenge. They know that they will. They'll get over it, under it, around it, through it. They'll get to the other side. Instead, they focus on how. And they ask themselves, what is the strategy I have not thought of yet? And that is the second one. Now, the third one is they have this strong foundation, which they are constantly reinforcing. What worked for them early in their career, they are doing again later in their career. It's always back to those same basic skills. And last but not least, and this is the one that really surprised me, 
is that all the extreme high achievers are constantly learning and they're learning it through informal means. So we've heard of the billionaires, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Mark Cuban. We know they read three to eight hours a day. It's not reading that made them billionaires. That's why we cannot copy other people's habits. We need to focus on mindsets. For them, it's reading, but really what they were doing, their mindset is opening their minds up to new knowledge. So what are some of the ways that we can open our minds up to new knowledge? Well, you can read, you can read books, you can read articles, you can listen um, to podcasts. Hopefully we're sharing some good stuff yes, here today. absolutely right? Webinars, YouTube, LinkedIn learning courses. I have thousands of people who have watched my LinkedIn learning courses. There's so many ways that you can learn new things and you can also talk to people. Now, one of the things that all the high achievers had is they talked to people on a regular basis. Specifically, they surrounded themselves with a team of mentors. These are people who believed in them more than they believed in themselves. And that's what they all had. So these are the four, the four elements of success that everyone from the astronaut to the Olympian had. And that's really, really simple. So it's, it's effectively passion. You believe in what you're doing. So your purpose in, in, in doing it. It's about having what I would describe as an agile mindset to think about, okay, we have a problem. Uh, how can we get round it? It's to utilize the, your successful techniques that you've had in the past, but also be constantly open to learning new things because we live in a world that's constantly changing. Is, is that a good summary? That's perfect. And really, you want to learn from people who are different than you. So if you're very insular and always surrounding yourself with people who do what you do, where you do it, you're only going to have one way of thinking. You need to find these new ways of approaching people, of connecting with people. Look, the checklist that we have in hospitals were developed by the Air Force. Airline pilots use them. They use checklists. And that's what is now used in operating rooms across the world. It's innovation that was actually borrowed from another industry. But in order to do that, someone from medicine had to talk to someone from the Air Force and and to airline pilots. You need to be able to communicate with people who are different than you, who are from other industries than you. And I think a lot of people have that challenge of how to initiate conversations with strangers, which is why I offer in the success factor so many ways that people should actually do that, how to initiate that conversation, whether you're meeting them in a conference or at the, at you know, on in the airport or in a Zoom room, right? There are different ways that you can, you can meet people. It's, but your point about the, the importance of diversity, one of the things that I repeatedly and probably ad nauseam for some people bang on about is the whole concept of diversity of thought. And uh, w- within organizations, so if we, if we take the financial services, you know, it, it's okay, so we want to introduce diversity to this particular part of the organization. Um, yeah, okay, introduce people from minorities and all the rest of it. But one of the most diverse things you can do is to take somebody from a totally different part of the organization. And, and this is why 
to, to your point, and it's probably in your book, one of the things I recommend to, to leaders, in fact, if I'm doing a keynote speech somewhere, it's actually a pretty firm requirement that I want them, is to do lunch and learn sessions, which is just too simply. And, and for you listeners who don't know what lunch and learn sessions are, it's essentially you as a leader think of somebody who could come and talk to your team from a different part of the organization to talk about what they do, how they do it, what their challenges are, and how your people and their people could work better together to break down silos, as we have said, to see the big picture. And you do the same for them. And it takes a lunchtime. And at the end of that lunchtime, your people are saying, wow, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Now I understand them better. Oh, and actually, I think my boss is genuinely interested in me because they actually set up a lunch and learn session. And I just think to, to your point about just keeping it so simple and practical works. Absolutely. And it's so critical that we get out of our silos and really learn how other people are working. What are their pain points? What are the things that are coming a little too easily, right? Because that's an opportunity for enhancement. But the only way that you will know that is if you actually talk to people in in other industries and, and also other departments. So my mentoring team, I always say I was patient zero with the success factor. I have physicians and scientists and educators and military and finance and law. That's it. Six. Six different industries on my mentoring team. When I wrote the book proposal for the success factor, I actually showed it to my mentor, Dr. Marie Volpe, who happened to be my doctoral advisor. She had written multiple books. She knew exactly how to put together a book proposal. I did not show it to the lawyer who had never written a book, right? <laughs> but when I had to negotiate the contract, who do you think I showed it to? So that it goes lawyer. to that. It goes to the point that we've had from various people before, be it Lord Stephen Green, ex-chairman, chief executive of HSBC, government minister, to Matthias Imbach, CEO of the First Digital Bank, to Andy Byford, who runs all of London's transport and did New York's MTA. And the moral of the story is get yourself a good mentor and note what I'm going to say now, everyone listening. That does not just apply to you if you are in C-suite or the two levels below. That applies to everybody. Is that a fair comment, Ruth? I think you need a team of mentors and you need a coach. You should have both. Now, if you, if you so if we now think that, that many of the people listening are not in senior leadership roles, they may be in middle management roles, their first leadership role, uh, maybe their organization doesn't have a mentoring program uh, and putting, having put in many mentoring programs in organizations, there is a, dare I say it, an unfortunate tendency on or, or amongst organizations to invest such resources only in the people at the top because you don't want to upset them and only in people who are identified as talent because that's where your investment is, but forget everybody else. If you happen to be in a group that isn't C-suite or isn't defined as talent, what should you what should you try and do, Ruth, from your perspective? Make your own mentoring team. You do not have to wait and you should not wait 
for it to be handed to you on a silver platter. So there's different levels of people you need on your mentoring team, different types of people you need on your mentoring team. And in fact, if you're, I write a lot about it in the success factor, but if your listeners want a worksheet as to how to quickly start identifying who should be on their Mm -hmm. mentoring team and how to approach them, they can just go to my website. You download for free ruthgotian.com slash mentoring team, one word, and you will get, it looks like a bullseye, a mentoring team worksheet. Who should be, how to identify your goal? How to identify your plan? How to identify who should be on your mentoring team? And then there are all these subsequent articles that I've written about how to approach people. And I'll give you a hint, never ask someone to be a mentor. Because the second you're asking them to be your mentor, you're asking them to take on another obligation. Instead, ask them for their perspective. Because if they're going to be your mentor, they need to know, like, and trust you. And that yes. needs to be earned. That's a beautiful point. That, that um, And also, to be honest, I've seen in organizations when there is a, a, a mentoring program set up between perhaps um, talented stroke, high potential people and senior leadership. There is always a, a rush for somebody to be mentored by the CEO. The assumption being that if you are mentored by the CEO, it is going to be the greatest mentoring experience in the world. In fact, you don't care if it's the greatest mentoring experience in the world, because you think if you're mentored by the CEO, your career is set for life. The reality of how the world works, Ruth, as you will no doubt confirm from your experience, is that merely because someone happens to be a senior leader does not necessarily mean they are a really good mentor. Tell us more from your experience. No, no. Look, their mentoring <laughs> their mentoring is probably based on their own mentoring experience. They might be too busy. They might not get back to you. They might become very possessive. In fact, my good friends Vinit Chopra and Sanjay Saint wrote one of the best articles I've ever read about the negative side of mentoring. It's called mentor, mentoring Mentorship Malpractice. It was in JAMA. And they talk about the negative parts of mentoring. Now, the problem is when you have this negative mentoring or what we call marginal mentoring, which is it's sort of vanilla, not great, not bad. It's just there. As a result, what happens is that you are less likely to seek out a mentor later on. Now, this is problematic because there's a lot of research on the benefits of mentoring. And those who are mentored out-earn and outperform those who are not. They get higher raises, more promotion, lower burnout. I mean, there's a ton of research on this. But that means they need a good mentor. And the CEOs may not have the time, may not know how, may not have the right personality. You need to find people who you gel with. You need to develop relationships. They need to know, like, and trust you, and you need to know, like, and trust them. And that comes with time. But if you can't get time with that person because they're so busy, it doesn't make a difference. They are not opening their contact list to you because they don't even know you, right? I get people asking me all the time, can you introduce me to this NBA champion, to this Olympian, to this Nobel Prize winner? I don't even know you. Why would I give you their email? (laughs) Right? And this is the same thing that happens with mentorship. It it, it is really fascinating that there is a a depth and a nuance to what you're saying about mentoring that, that, that the theoretical stuff 
that most people think exist, it, it, is, it isn't covered by that. It's those simple practicalities. It's like your four success factors that are not um, not within sort of theory. It's, it's practical stuff about I'm passionate about this. I want to beat these challenges. I can utilize some of the skills I've had before um, and, and constantly learning. Um, I, uh, years ago, I met a guy called Sir George Schulte, Maestro Schulte, who was a Hungarian conductor, um, <clears throat> uh, who, who was known throughout the world. And he was in his early eighties and he was talking about music and learning. And he said, you know, what I love it, every day that when I'm working with an orchestra, uh, I'm particularly a new orchestra, I'm learning every day. And that's what makes me want to do it even more. And you think, hang on, this guy is a maestro. He's one of the greatest conductors in the world. He's in his 80s and he's telling me he's still learning every day. That's right. What can you say? High achievers do. That's what the high achievers do. They're continuously learning. That's the fourth element. So for some of the listeners out there who are maybe in your early 30s, coming up 40s, and have the sneaking suspicion that due to the success you have already achieved, you might know it all. I'm sorry. Ruth will tell you, you don't. You don't know what you don't know. And that's why you need to constantly learn. Whenever you're in a room, you want to be the least impressive person in the room. Always. it's, It's just so true. So Ruth, what next for you? Well, there might be uh, another book on the horizon. I think I still have a few more books in me Um, and uh, uh, lots of keynotes about it. And look, my job is to make people successful. And I am honored that I get to help people do that every single day. And the advice you've given us to our listeners will certainly help anybody listening. And for our listeners, I suggest that without doubt you listen to this podcast at least once and take a few notes and uh, in a week's time i'll be giving a reflection that sort of summarizes all the key points you've made then how can people find out more about you and the success factor sure so look my website has all kinds of information on there including links uh to forbes and psychology today where i write a lot there's also a ton of free resources. So just go to ruthgotian.com. And if you want to know where to get the book anywhere in the world, just go to ruthgotian.com slash book. It'll give you Amazon links all over the world, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, independent bookstores, wherever you like to shop. And, and I think that the book is really powerful because it covers not only those four factors, but it also covers the mechanics around making it work, the mentoring, etc. cetera. Uh, and people often say to me, you know, how do you become an effective leader? I think one of the most important things that, that you focused on is that if you have that foundation, that those things that are your success factors are being practiced yourself, then it means that you are more likely to be an effective leader. Is that a fair comment? Fair. Very fair. You have to practice. And I tell people I was patient zero. It's absolutely superb. Finally, then, from everything you've learned and everything you've seen, what would be one thing that you would say to a developing leader out there one or two things. I'll give you two things that, that they should do to make them better. Or if someone's not a leader, how can they be a better colleague? 
Well, first they need to read the success factor, which will teach them all about that. But I want to leave them with two tips, um, which really came through, not just from my mentor, but through all of the research that I've done, speaking to hundreds of people. The one is, first one, do something important, not just interesting. Now, I told you my mentor, Dr. Bert Shapiro, told me that, but Dr. Tony Fauci, who leads all of our infectious disease um, here in the United States, he actually said the same thing to me when I asked him how he picks a project. He said, I do what's important, not just interesting. So that's two people who said that to me. The second thing is all of the high achievers, they fear not trying more than they fear failing. Fear not trying more than you fear failing. I'll leave everyone with that. That is absolutely superb. And that's what it's about. Life is about trying and learning from that. Ruth, thank you so much for your your absolutely amazing journey, your story, uh, and what you've achieved, how you've helped so many people, uh, and you've just helped significantly more in 60 countries across the world by giving us your contributions. So thank you very much. My honor. Thank you. Well, listeners, there certainly is a lot there to reflect on and a lot there that you can do something about tomorrow. Just that simple idea of not only doing something interesting, but also doing something important. The whole principle of broadening your mindset through talking to people who have had different experiences to yourself, to develop your diversity of thought, and to help you do that to seek out a mentor or mentors. Now, those four key attributes of the most successful people, the passion, the agility of thinking to get around challenges and beat them, the utilization of previous experience to make things work successfully, but the acceptance of the need for constant learning to broaden your experience base and respond to the dynamic world that we live in. And of course, the fundamental point that if you get your mindset right, everything else will follow. I suppose it's also worth saying that there is significantly more detail on how to make this happen in Ruth's book, The Success Factor. So maybe just think about the challenges that you currently face and ask yourself, are there people you know who you could ask for their perspectives on it who could possibly help you grow and develop? And if so, go and ask them. So think about how you can use some of Ruth's ideas to help you get to where you want to be. And don't forget that in a week, I will give you a more in-depth view of the key takeaways from Ruth, my insights and three ideas for actions in my reflections on the top. And if you've used any of the insights you've got from previous perspectives from the top guests and they've helped you, send me your success stories. I've had some great ones in and I just love to hear them. Also, don't forget to sign up on the website so you don't miss any of the future great guests over the next few months. Thanks for tuning in. Check out the show notes from today's episodes at perspectivesfromthetop.com where you can not only enjoy additional resources from today's show, but all previous ones. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts so you don't miss any. And if you really enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating and review. Have a question or comment? Let's discuss it. Message me on LinkedIn. Perspectives from the Top is produced in collaboration with Detroit Podcast Studios. 
So have a successful week. Use today's new learnings and actions. And remember, it's onwards and upwards. See you next time on Perspectives from the Top.